Welcome to the Rev Thinking Podcast, the world's best creative minds in the business of motion, production, and sound. Here we believe the best way to deal with the future is to create it. I'm Joel Pilger. This episode today is part two of a conversation that began with John Lepore and Ryan Summers almost a year ago, where we talked about the topic, and I gotta get this right, the topic was the end of the beginning of motion design. So this is part two of that conversation. I'm stumbling over my words a bit because I accidentally misquoted the title as the beginning of the end of motion design. And on social media, some people freaked out and said, no, say it isn't so. So we're back with a part two. Why? Because that earlier conversation was one of the most listened to episodes we've ever had here on the podcast. So part two, you're in for a treat because these two fellas are some of the smartest guys I know in the industry. Let's just say this, John Lepore came from a decade and a half, I believe, at Perception in New York. So think visual effects, big title sequences and things for folks like Marvel. And he's now a futurist slash consultant, always up to something very innovative. And the guy is so smart, it's almost annoying. Same is true of Ryan Summers. So smart and probably the fastest talking person I know, <laughs> which is saying something. But Ryan hails from a career spanning uh, Imaginary Forces Digital Kitchen. He's now at Spilt. He also spent a season at School of Motion. So he's really got his finger on the pulse of the motion design industry. What are we talking about today? Well, it's this continuing idea of motion design is evolving and the beginning is over and things are getting really interesting now. When we look at the adjacencies, where motion design is going and how the discipline, the practice, and even the mindset is setting you up for success and a really interesting career despite disruptions, right? Despite all of the curveballs that we feel happening out there in the universe. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation with me and John and Ryan. Hang on to your hat. I'm going to dive right in because there's all kinds of banter that we would normally cover before we start recording. But the banter between you dudes is sort of like gold. So I'm going to let this just flow naturally and maybe set it up with a little bit of a funny aha moment of... Um, Let's see, was it you, Ryan, that commented on my comment that Amanda Russell at Cream was saying something, and I said, oh, we should talk about that on our Beginning of the End podcast with Ryan Summers and John Lepore. And she was like, wait, did you say Beginning of the End of Motion Design? Mm -hmm. Did you mean, you commented, I think you meant End of the Beginning. <laughs> That's what I feel. It's the end of the, we are, we are fully at the end of the beginning. I really feel like I always call back to this quote from Mick Jagger. I don't have the full quote, but the essence of it is, I don't understand why people get so upset about like, there not being so much money to be made in like music because from the birth of man, all the way to right before CDs, you made money by going out and performing. And for a limited one time, only brief moment in time, you could print music on a sheet of plastic and become a billionaire. And that time came and that time is gone. And now we're back to working. And I really do feel like in motion design, there was a brief moment in time where everybody could basically offer up a commodity as if it was this razzle-dazzle, impossible thing, 
called After Effects and Cinema 4D that only the select few knew how to do. And I think the world is caught up to our tricks and they are calling the spade a spade when we say we're storytellers and we bring things to life. And they're like, yes, we need that. Do you do that? Or do you just move shiny spheres and squares in After Effects and Cinema 4D? And I think the jig is up. Even before that, it was like silicon graphics, workstations, and you know, or or you had to have a flame yeah. or or whatnot. That jig is up. Oh yeah, do you remember the days, John, when uh, you know this is again showing my age? I don't want to reveal yours, but yeah, I mean, this idea of being sort of disrupted in the status quo is no longer working, and I'm scared and I'm afraid. Like we've been through this two or three times in our careers. So I don't mean to diminish how it feels to people that are being disrupted. It sucks and it's not awesome. But on the other hand, I think, Ryan, I'm hearing you say, don't freak out yeah. because every, everyone gets through this. And when you do, it's kind of awesome on the other side. But this is, this is the nature of what we all got in the job, right? Like there was never a world where there was a contract saying you're going to be an artist working professionally where you only had to learn three years of things. And for the rest of your career, that would be it. That's never been that. And then you, you combine that with, oh, our industry is art plus technology. What did you think was going to happen? Right? Like, we're not reading newspapers anymore, right? Like, we're not all just, you know, doing kinetic type and explainer graphics. Like, I, I mean, it, it, it comes down to the fact that what you were selling has less value, but the things you were doing to make that thing have infinite possibilities. So are you going to get on the train or are you just going to you know, sit there until it doesn't run anymore? So each of us is no longer doing what we were doing in a previous life. But what's that pace like for you guys? Like when you think back, would you say as recently as 10 years ago, you're not doing what you were doing 10 years ago? Or do you feel like, no, it's more like a year ago? I mean, it's it's there's different tracks, right? And there's different layers to it because there's kind of like uh, the the more solid tools or disciplines or or whatnot. And, and that sort of stuff is for me shifting quite a bit but i think there's also just like the mindset mm -hmm. and the the way that you look at the playing field that you're approaching and for me that's the thing that even parts of that are like oh i've always thought about things this way and then there's other layers somewhere in there that are like oh this is updating on like a weekly mm -hmm. basis as i'm i'm thinking about how to approach uh service, how to approach collaboration, how to approach uh, positioning and and whatnot. Um, those those pieces for me are are just like they they have to evolve rapidly. And for me, that's the really fun part or I guess like you know I'm I'm at that point in my career where the the tools are coming so rapidly that I'm happy to just sort of like watch the conveyor belt move by at full speed ahead and just be like, I'm not even going to be able to get my hands on half of these things. And I'm always going to be fortunate enough to be surrounded by people that, you know, get into and master some of these pieces or different things and whatnot. And the best thing that I can do is just help to figure out like, how are we channeling that all into something that's moving our clients' goals further or pushing our client out of their comfort zone and making them feel happy to be outside of their comfort zone yeah, and, yeah. and and all of that. It's, 
yeah, it's 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 wild just watching this stuff ramp up to to the speed at which it's at, and even just like tools alone, like the it used to be like you were using After Effects and Maya, or you were using After Effects and Cinema 4D, and it was like that for like a decade, and that was all it was, and then I don't know, like six years ago or so, between GPU rendering and then all this other stuff, all of a sudden the tools started you know, becoming a lot less standardized. And I kind of love that. I mean, it makes it it makes things really challenging in some ways, shapes or forms. It's very interesting you say six years ago, because if anybody wants to know the lag between like somebody who's working as like an ECD or a creative director that's not on the box, but still understands the tools versus a person who's heads down in the box. Six years ago, John's saying he realized like, oh, it's not just C4D and After Effects anymore. Literally three weeks ago at Camp Mograph, the overwhelming sentiment from the artists that were there coming out of it was the lamentation of like, oh my God, you can't just be a C4D and After Effects artist anymore. So there you go. Like that six years lag between somebody like John who's sitting out on the bleeding edge, living in that world, still understands how to make the work, but is you know out there. And then if you want to know how long it takes, there's the difference. Like for it to hit the like the rails of like, oh, well, there's so much more stuff I've got to be able to do. Holy cow. I would say... It's wildly exciting in either direction, because if you're the kind of person who's like, you know what, I just want to do my own thing. What can I do from these tools to do my own thing? Well, you know what? You can do so much more now as one person. Joel, I won't say what we talked about yesterday, but one person with some of these new AI-assisted tools, what you could do to compete on a level against an entire studio, strip away the whole question about ethics, sooner or later AI tools will be figured out. Whether or not you agree with that, that's not the conversation. But what we saw yesterday, what one smart person using a bunch of different tools, plus their 20 years of experience in the current tools we have and their creative mind could do competing against the industry stalwarts and winning, one person can do an entire studio's worth, at least on the initial stage. And then if you want to go the other direction, the ways that you can now collaborate across the world with people from every possible sector in a snap of a finger... You can go either way. You can bolt yourself into a much bigger production and then send it send it back down to just you for a while, or you can just be a solo. I just saw the creator, not the best movie in the world, but the way the way the movie was made is infinitely more compelling than the actual movie. Gareth Edwards made an eighty million dollar movie that legitimately looks better than a three hundred million dollar Marvel film with an FX three. That's what everybody's talking about. The camera choice had nothing. An FX3 is like a $4,000 camera. The quotes are like, oh, this guy made a Marvel-sized movie with something you can buy at Best Buy. That has nothing to do with it. He was a VFX artist who completely flipped the script on how you do it. He went out and shot everything. Nothing green screen, nothing virtual, edited his whole movie, and then went to ILM and said, here's what you're going to do. In this shot, I need three robots. In this scene, I need a big tank. And he already had all the designs, and they only made what they needed. Completely changed the way you make films. So in my mind... How this isn't the most exciting time in the world for anybody other than people who just want to sit down in After Effects and do explainer videos or kinetic type. I don't know how you can't not be excited right now. So there's a secret to like there's a there's a special formula to what happened with the creator that is a huge thing for me and the way that I've approached my career. And it's something that I think because of the uh, you know, we're all talking about this through the context of like motion design, mm -hmm. right? And to me, that's a 
that's a discipline that has some really incredible, like universal, like sub disciplines baked into it already that can be applied elsewhere. And so what Gareth did in making the creator was he took all of this brilliant insight and understanding that he already had from being a on the box visual effects artist and was able to let that inspire the process and the workflow that he used to make this film. And that is how you get to a, you know, $80 million film that looks like a $300 million film. And I feel like everyone in this space of motion design has a opportunity to look at all these sub-disciplines that they've accumulated. Because like with motion design, it's like, well, I know like, you know, timing and keyframe easing and, you know, typography and vector design and a little bit of photo compositing and 3D and, and all of these different things. You can take many of those or sometimes just one or two of those components and you can put them into your duffel bag and walk out of the motion design community and walk into numerous other adjacent communities mm -hmm. who need things like typography or information design or layout design or or whatnot and bring these other aspects to that space yep. and you will immediately be aggressively more proficient and you'll be able to do that you know 80 million dollars mm -hmm. that looks like 300 million dollars in these other spaces and i i always want to encourage motion designers to look for any opportunity that they can, especially because it's such a sort of like nomadic freelance sort of culture. If you're just ping-ponging between the same like six or seven New York or LA motion design studios or shops, like you're just getting the same experiences, you're working with the same kind of clients, you're having the same kind of often crummy relationships with unappreciative clients and, and whatnot. You're valued as a commodity, right? Yeah. And when you go to these other communities that are like, oh my gosh, we've never, you know, met a gymnast before. Like <laughs> we would all happily just sit around and watch you do backflips mm -hmm. all day long. It can be a really beautiful thing. It can be a really powerful thing. And, and especially if you go into those spaces and you absorb whatever else is going on in there, that then gets you into that sort of like cross-disciplinary mm -hmm. unicorn status. I love, I love that you said unicorn because I feel like that's what Joel, we've been saying over and over is that motion design is not just animation for advertising as a, as a motion designer. In my mind, everybody wants to put motion design in this little, little, little tiny, oh, it's only this really small market, but as a person doing motion design, you actually are the umbrella of all the other adjacent ones combined. That Like right now, people are talking about Gareth Edwards in Hollywood, like he's some weird mix of like Neo and Gandalf. But I, I would posit that like 70% of people working in motion design could look the way Gareth Edwards looks like right now if they do what you're saying. If you go into the automotive industry the right way, if you go into the experiential world, if you go into the design world, if you go into agencies, Everything you know, combined with a little bit of confidence and a little bit of like willing to bet on yourself, makes you look like that person. That everyone's like, "How is Garrett? How did he do this?" It's like you can. I think I, I normally hate the words unicorn and ninja and rock star, but whatever. All three of those combined, a motion designer who's motivated the right way can look like that walking out the door. So I'm going to do a quick reset, just to like what do they call that? Like reset the room kind of thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> is this Clubhouse circa 2021? Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. That is so 2021. Well, so I just want to say thank you, Ryan Summers. Thank you, John Lepore. Uh, good friends and colleagues to be having this conversation. For anyone that doesn't know you guys, right? We're talking about this, like this is part two of a conversation we started last year, I believe, that we called the end of the beginning of motion design. Um, do us just a quick favor, because I don't want to interrupt this jam session, this riffing that's going on here. But John, do me a favor, say hi, Give anyone who doesn't know you like the quick log line on, on John. Sure. So uh, I'm John Lapore. I'm a creative consultant and I describe what I do as designing the future. I say it like that because it sounds like bullshit, but what I can back it up with is that I spent well over a decade making uh, fictional technologies that you would see in movies like Black Panther, Iron Man 2, and like 20 or 30 other films. And really quickly parlayed that experience into real-world digital product design, which uh, mostly steered me towards emerging technologies like AR, uh, artificial intelligence, and all sorts of other wacky things with brands like Google and many of the car manufacturers that are out there and whatnot. And so I've just kind of built up this specialty around coming in and helping teams solve creative challenges in the spaces where uh, the the clay is not set, where there is no best practices that exist to rely upon, and look at ways that we can blend this mixture of like pragmatic strategic thinking and these advanced disciplines, uh, particularly coming from the background, motion design, animation, 3D, and whatnot, into creating the next generation of experiences. It's, John might be the poster child of like expanding into the adjacencies, mm -hmm. right, Ryan? So uh, for anyone that doesn't know you, give uh, give us the quick log line on Ryan. My job title is technically Senior Creative Director at a studio, a motion design studio called Spilt. Um, I, I think of myself as an animator who loves pretty much everything and took a decade to find out that I was working in motion design. I, I worked I worked in films, I worked in TV, I worked in video games. Um, I produced and made documentaries, shooting, editing stuff. Um, but at the heart of all of it, it was based around everything I loved about animation. I was a student going towards chemical engineering for a long time until I found 3D animation. So that probably colors a lot of the way I think and talk. Um, but I would say I spent 10 years trying to find motion design without knowing the name. Spent another five years working at places like Imaginary Forces and Digital Kitchen, getting better at it. And then for the last for the last five years, basically taking all that stuff and basically saying doing what we were saying, right? Like took motion design skills, animation skills, and went out into the real world and applied that. So things like um, basically created from scratch the Warner Brothers Hotel in Abu Dhabi, where we had an empty vessel, a building, and filled it with about. 95 minutes worth of feature film quality animation that we did for a fraction, like talking about Gareth Edwards, for a fraction of the cost of it, um, but also imbued the entire building with the essence of Warner Brothers Studio. So like down to the how the people talk, what outfits do they wear, what were the names of the restaurants, what, what carpeting did we choose? I hand selected every single photograph that went to every single room in the building to make every single, you know, like guest experience completely unique and bespoke. Um, Times a bunch of other things, stores, shopping malls, you know, like I still get into After Effects and sling keyframes. Um, but at the end of the day, it's for a, you know, I love the word that you say experience. Cause I think that that's the, the sum total of what I think like you can do as a motion designer. If you take your skills one step past making commercials. So it's ironic for me, um, <clears throat> not being no longer being a creative. I know I, I I'm always a creative, but no longer making 
creative work. Uh, for somebody that doesn't know me, I'm Joel. I ran Impossible Pictures for 20 years, which was in Denver and, you know, a successful enterprise. And then said, I want to go help everyone do what I did. So I started working as a consultant. And now, you know, I hang out with a couple hundred studios around the world. And I bump into all these amazing smart people and become friends with people like you guys, um, which makes my life really, really fun. Ryan, there's one thing that you um, didn't mention. The, the years that you were at School of Motion, you got exposed to what I would call maybe the epicenter of like the people that are on the cusp of, I know it's motion design and that's maybe uh, the, the smaller word for a larger ecosystem, but, um, but you're still there very much like have your finger on that pulse, mm -hmm. but, right? Because of all the, just where, where you, where you are and all the relationships you made, the connections and the followers and all that, that kind of thing. Um, are you sensing an increasing optimism or increasing pessimism when we talk about all of these changes and things that are happening in our industry? What's, what's the vibe? I think there's an overwhelming sense of panic and doom and gloom, partially because of all these rapid changes. You know, we just went off, we just had the summer of NFTs and then crashed that. And it, it very, very, very quickly just had this, this very fast gradient into what the hell is AI going to do to my career? Um, but I think it's all the underpinning nature of all of it is, is this, I hate to use this phrase again, but this idea of like, are you the architect or are you the bricklayer? And there are a lot of people who are like, how dare you even say I should have to be an architect, but don't call me a bricklayer either. So I think that that's always had this, this underlying tension, I think in the industry, at least for the last six to seven, eight years of rapid influx of people coming in through tools, like the access, the, the low cost of tools and hardware combined with the fairly cheap and, and all encompassing training that's out there created this flood of people who did not come through art or design, which is great. I love the fact that the doors are open and help perpetuate that at a place like School Motion. But I also think that people view the entire industry through the prism of the tools that provide their career versus the true value underneath that of what they're offering. Um, so I, I, I think there are shining bright lights of people who are leading the way, but I think there's also just a lot of pessimism, a lot of fear. Um, I think there's a lot of people who have become comfortable that see that comfort being shaken up that don't necessarily enjoy the friction that could create the possibilities. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, I, I think it's actually a good thing because that's always been the thing holding us back is being a very tools-based entryway into the career. Would you say, um, I, I've, I've certainly have seen studios and the, the owners behind those studios maybe on a similar curve, but maybe six months ahead of others in that they are maybe more accustomed to being disrupted and having to be mm -hmm. in a state of constant pivoting <laughs> and and evolution but i don't know do you have any thoughts on, on on that as as if you were you know based on the owners and the principles that that you know inside of our community do you see a similar vibe or is there perhaps a little bit more like okay we're going to get through this i think there's like if we're talking today exactly today there's more hope caution hope with a lot of caution because they you know like we've we've seen like i think across motion design there's been an overall slow downtrend over the last year year and a half versus the explosion for the previous two years due to covid and all the other stuff but the thing that's really weird and you guys probably the empirical proof of this is it feels like every quarter or so most people are seeing like a little spike that is this like this like oh we're busy again cool it's back and then it slowly trails off so it has this i think there's a, a lot of hope but there's this insidious nature of like have we hit a bottom are we are we being priced out are, are the big guys coming for our lunch and are the little people knocking on our door the one man two man shops um 
that's always been there, but I feel like it's a lot more acute right now. I think there are some studios who are just used to, like, I love the way John defines himself because you're almost, you're almost future-proofing yourself by saying I'm designing the future, right? Like baked into that job title is like, hey, I, I, I'm always going to be two steps ahead of everybody else. So, you know, like, I think naturally we want to hope that that's a brighter future and not like a dismal one. So I think there's just a general, I think, John, you said this, like you're kind of always operating at a high level of optimism. Yeah. I mean, it's important for me to empathize with the doom and gloom that a lot of people are feeling out there. Like I, I don't discount any of it. Uh, I'm very sensitive to it and I have my own like waves or fluctuations of it. But I think it's also like, we like everybody collectively needs to perpetuate the positivity mm -hmm. moving forward. Like we need to generate it. Uh, and this is, this is going to be kind of very broad, but uh, there's this topic that I keep circling back to. Um, I was speaking at a AI conference a month or two ago. And the whole thing that I got into was just like, listen, like, nobody knows what the future is going to be like. Like nobody has an accurate crystal ball that can tell them. So if you were to ask any person on the street what they think of when they think of the future, their mind goes straight to fiction mm -hmm. and what we've seen in fiction. And, and you know, like back in the days of 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, the future seemed positive. Even, even with evil Hal, the future still seemed, you know, positive and optimistic around that time and, and original Star Trek and whatnot. We're now uh, about 15 to 20 years into nonstop visions of the like grimiest, grungiest, most <laughs> dystopian future ever. Uh, even the, the creator is even a, a oh good God. example of like, it's the most textural, disturbing, chilling, dark, gloomy, you know, sort of vision of, of where things are going. And that's kind of like, that's fiction's job. Like fiction needs conflict to keep you interested. Mm -hmm. And aesthetically, I think we're all like drawn towards that. We're all like, oh, we love, you know, Blade Runner, Akira, whatever, you know, like that stuff all connects for, for all of us. But we no longer have any like positive future like models to look up to. Like even when I was a little kid, like Epcot, Epcot Center, which I never got to go to when I was a kid. I was always like, I want to go to that place that's got the giant spherical, you know, structure that seems like the most futuristic place on earth. And then by the time I got to Epcot, when I was like, I don't know, 26 years old, it was like exactly the same as it was in 1983, <laughs> but everything had just sort of yellowed yep. and decayed Yellow a little bit and, and whatnot. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like it's, it's really tough, I think, to, to get super excited about the future, especially when we're right now in this moment where the future is looking unbelievably disruptive and unsettling. But there are some beautiful things that could come from it. Um, I got to give a shout out to my wife's aunt sent me a message after sitting by a campfire with her and my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law was very vehemently like all this all this evil crap is coming to take away everyone's jobs and it's going to grind us all down. And I was trying my best to put a little positive spit on it, but not doing the best job. Uh, my wife's aunt sent me a video of Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. getting into it. And I was expecting Bernie to be like, you know, like, yeah, AI and robotics are the devil. And he, he was saying, 
there are some beautiful opportunities here. Like, but we have to choose the beautiful right. opportunities. We have to look at these things and say, are these a way for you know the fat cats to get richer? Or is it a way for everyone to finally accept a four-day work week or, or things like that, right? Can we talk a little bit about that? Because we, we've just talked about like um, Epcot, right? The vision of the future, the experimental prototype community yeah. of tomorrow, right? We talk about like all this this technology we currently have when we were dreaming of all this stuff in the 50s. But if you weren't, if you talk to somebody who, who was like our age back then, the whole idea about the future was technology is going to come and make it easier for us to have more free time to have more time with our families, more yeah. time with our hobbies, more time like leisure, more time in the community. And what did it do? It didn't do that. It, it created this hustle grind culture where people are like 60 hour week, work like crazy, hustle. And though I'm not saying I agree with this, but it also blows my mind that now the tools that are in the near future are basically saying, you know what? You don't might not have to work as much. We have to figure it all out. We definitely have to figure it all out. Like, but, but like, AI may take a thing that would normally take you a week to do. You may be able to have AI-assisted tools that either let you get more iterations at it so it's closer to your vision or probably just make it take a lot less longer. So that future that everybody agreed to in the 50s when they're like, oh yeah, I can't wait for Epcot to be real because if you went and you went to those different like, it, all the different like exhibitions at Epcot, it was all about how, oh, you'll have um, self-folding robots for laundry. You'll never have to do laundry again. Yeah. Oh, you'll have food that, is, um, like all of that stuff. It was like, that's what the future, we don't think of it that way because we weren't alive there. We think of jetpacks and flying cars and uh, like all that stuff. But it blows my mind that now we're like, oh man, maybe some of that stuff like where you like, you could actually see your kid before eight o'clock because you have tools that help you take care of some of that. Like now we're fighting against that. Now it's like, no, no, I want to work my 60 hours a week, man. Like, don't take it away from me. Like, it's a very, I don't know if that's a very American-centric thing or just a, the culture of living in this like VC-funded startup technology world that that uh, you watch social network and you watch all these crazy TV shows. You're like, that's the life. That's what we have to go through. But it, it, it the dichotomy between the two blows my mind a little bit. It's really easy to imagine that the evil forces will steer this stuff away, you know, instead of it giving us more free time, it will just be with the time that you've already been expending, mm -hmm. you're gonna do 10 times as much. Yeah. I will just say, I think there is something for us to be self-aware of, that there is a certain amount of American bubble that we live in. And I discovered this by spending two weeks in Copenhagen. This is maybe a couple months ago. And I realized, oh, it's different here. Mm -hmm. Like there's an underlying pervasive culture and mindset and vibe and energy that was really different. And it made me pause and reflect. And when I came back to the States, you know, especially here in New York, it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. So we should just at least uh, acknowledge that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, maybe, and maybe question it, right? Which I think is what you're, you're asking, Ryan. I have a list that I could do very quickly just to prove like there, here are the actual things I'm excited about that I think I could do in less than 30 seconds. And I'm excited to see if John has any of the similar things on like his list of like, this is the stuff I'm super excited about. Can I, can I just do a, a lightning round? Just like here, here's the stuff. This is perfect. Go. Okay. So um, there's a new, new tool coming out. I've talked to a couple of people working on it um, coming out of beta very soon called Simulon that um, feels like the real deal in terms of being able to take an iPhone with a camera and essentially live stream 
anything you can possibly think of that's a rigged CG character. It catches reflections. It I don't know how, exactly how it's doing everything. It's creating shadows. Um, and everything will be edible after the fact. But it's basically like a VFX studio in a box that you basically can see on set on the day. And it's made for both consumers and prosumers. Look up Simulon. It'll blow your mind. Um, everyone's talking about this, but I want to I want to like couch it in a totally different thing. Everybody's saying motion design is dead. MoGraph is dead. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, I I totally totally go against that because all you have to do is look at the sphere that's just opened in Las Vegas. Not, not like it's very cool. Like, great. Whatever you want to joke around about you too. Look at the pitch deck that just came out for how much they are charging for the graphics mm -hmm. to go on that they make internally. Most of the time, $450,000 for, I think one day takeover. That is, is just a handful of minutes of the inventory per day. And it all has to be motion design. It's not live action. It's not a camera moving through space. And then go and watch the U2 stuff. And somebody wants to tell me motion design is dead. No way in hell. No way at all. Um, Interactive tools. There's an amazing amount of interactive tools that if you're scared about After Effects leaving or all the knowledge you have from Cinema 4D, look up Spline, look up Reeve, and then look up Project Avalanche for Unreal. Not just because it's trying to be the new After Effects, but because it has hooks to live broadcast where you can basically have Cinema, for, Cinema 4D with state machines that you hit a button or you listen to things and it will broadcast out live to you know, like a broadcast truck or to like you know an actual real world set interaction. Um, and then two other really dope things. There's an amazing new Disney robot that literally looks like Star Wars robots for real that does not look like it's rickety and falling over. It literally moves and acts. It's completely freestanding, completely balances itself, but it wakes itself up and it pops up and it looks like something from like a Pixar animator working on Star Wars. Totally real, just came out today. You gotta find it. And then the last thing I think is super dope is um, Toy Story did this really cool simulcast of a game for NFL recently where they were taking Hawkeye vision tracking, a bunch of sensors built into people's um, shoulder pads and basically put on the same game that was going on for real in like Andy's toy story room with like Buzz and Woody rooting for it. And it was all live. And it had this like the smallest of little like issues with it, but you could legitimately watch it and be like, holy cow, this is, this is the future. Like I can see robots playing real games, like it, just crazy, crazy amount of things. So that's the, I guess it was maybe longer, 30 seconds. But those are the things I'm excited about today. <laughs> I love it. I know we're uh, we're short on time, so uh, and it, which is fine because we can always come back and do part three and part four and so on <laughs> as we as we roll. But John, what's got, what's got you pumped, excited? I know you're going to pick up his, uh, Ryan's NFL thing right off the bat. Yeah, so the, uh, I, I wrote a piece on LinkedIn and on Twitter about, you know, the, that NFL Toy Story experience to me is like, it's just like step zero mm -hmm. of what the future of so many pieces of broadcast entertainment are going to be once we have like full three-dimensional capture mm -hmm. and awareness of this stuff. There's some amazing things there. Ryan, you mentioned Spline as one of the new tools. Yesterday, Webflow, which is one of the biggest like web development tools, just announced that they are like integrating Spline directly into Webflow. So we're going to see a whole lot more mm -hmm. 3D on the web, uh, which to me is like, that's, that's almost old news, but it's again, it's like foundational tech for what we will all be experiencing in much more like immersive environments and experiences. And there's so many of those things that are on the horizon and are coming really, really quickly. And the people that are in those spaces close to those things, they're coming from a legacy of tech and a way of approaching design and user experience that isn't ready for this. And they need 
that insight. They need that flexibility. They need the people who are comfortable in jumping into three-dimensional space and using information and data, but in a way that it moves, in a way that it occupies a physical space and still communicates and conveys information to the users of these new experiences. So, I mean, to me, that's that's still even tip of the iceberg. Uh, every other physical product that's out there, uh, whether it's a car or a piece of electronics that you hold in your hand or a piece of electronics that moves through your home or whatever it is, all of those things are going to have a visual communication layer baked into them that will be closer to motion graphics than it is to anything else that currently exists. And to me, that's all that's all prime for for the taking. And you know, as as Ryan said the last time we talked, it's just up to the the motion designers out there to choose to just reach out and grab it because it's all there waiting for us. Yeah, it's like I think we were talking about it as like a brass ring or something just to be grasped and uh, taken advantage of. What was the F1 thing that that I saw you posting about that got, kind of lit you up? So uh, Apple uh, is supposedly making a $2 billion per season bid to get the global exclusive rights to broadcast uh, Formula One, which is like my favorite sport. So I'm geeking out over it just for, for that reason alone. But I also immediately can't help but just start looking at it and thinking like, well, Formula One, they already have a terrific streaming platform that they use. Uh, if Apple's going to purchase a sport, they're going to have to kind of like one-up that platform. And then I start looking at this Toy Story broadcast, this Toy Story NFL broadcast where they're able to take a live football game and generate it as like 3D animated toy characters running around the field in real time. It's really cool. It's really interesting. And it lays the groundwork for like, well, what if a football game could be broadcast and produced this way, but the players look like the real players? Like it just looks like it's totally photo real, but you have this infinite control over where the camera can be. Can I see every play from the player's point of view? Can I see from the ball's point of view? Like, you know, can I have Christopher Nolan directing the game for me while I'm watching it? Right. Right. But that that's going to be really hard to do. That's going to be tough. It's going to take a while. We'll get there. But the capture, the tracking, all that stuff, it's still got a ways to go. Formula One cars are really easy to track. They're all, you know, static, hard physical, hard body objects with like, yeah, the wings open and close and the wheels turn and the suspension compresses. But that's that's a lot easier than making a, a you know, a sports superstars face, you know, uh, transition between natural expressions and emotions and whatnot. Right. And, and so cloth and fabrics <laughs> and cloth and fabric and and all of that. And so I think there's a pathway for uh, Apple to to step up and i've had uh since you know since posting about this i've actually had a couple people that may be associated with relevant entities that i'm uh mentioning here um there's an opportunity to really easily create a broadcast that is effectively like a, a video game engine the the formula one video games look amazing because again that's also stuff that's really easy to render and make look super realistic that stuff could easily be broadcast as a live real-time game. You could 
maybe control the camera yourself. Maybe it, it allows for more uh, complex control and views over a sport that's also really hard to see from like, you know, a dozen static cameras that are arranged around a racetrack. But then once you start thinking about like, well, put that into a Apple Vision Pro headset and the possibilities just become like absolutely mind-numbing, whether that's like, okay, now I'm going to really feel what it is like to be in one of these vehicles or whether it's I want to have the entire racetrack uh, taking up the floor of my living room and I want to be able to step over it like Godzilla and then look in closer at any of the detail or the action that's happening. There's some really amazing possibilities there. And so, yeah, sorry, this is me like geeking out super hard because this is like the convergence of like three or four of my wheelhouses, right? But I just, I love, I love this stuff. I love these opportunities that are all here. And I love that this isn't fantasy. This isn't science fiction. There's tangible pathways to make this all happen and to make it real. But it also requires a bit of like cross competency collaboration, but it also requires people that are comfortable with ambitious, like create or imagine anything and make it happen. And if you were to talk to a user experience designer and say like, could you, you know, really quickly prototype someone having a realistic miniature sports arena on their coffee table, they would be like, oh, geez, uh, but what, how, you know, how to do this or how to do that or whatnot talk to a motion designer and they'd be like, oh, we could have, we could have clouds and birds flying over it too. It'll be beautiful. It's going to be great. It's going to be so immersive and incredible and exciting and dynamic and wait until you see the fireworks show that unfolds at the end of it. Like this is, this is the space that we are heading into uncomfortably quickly is tailor-made for the mindsets that we have in our immediate community. I, I'm I'm just now experiencing this fresh thought called John experiencing an F1 race, not in the past tense, not what here's what it would have been like if you were driving that car or something, but no, here's what it's happening in real time. Oh, you want to switch from this driver's POV to this POV, and it's all this three time, you know, 3D real time, whatever. Um experience that's really interesting because it makes me think of how different it is when we as humans come together in real time and we experience moments mm -hmm. as opposed to right as opposed to watching replays stories things that are in the can there's this whole call it appointment viewing what have you dynamic that is really interesting to think about that is very different from the streaming model we've all you know that at its heyday here a few years ago, and it's it's being challenged now. And maybe this technology and creativity and everything that you're talking about that merges all these really weird adjacencies along with motion design is gonna give, give rise to a new form of entertainment, but also maybe new forms of community even, because once you bring in real time, it's not just entertainment. There's something else happening there. Yeah, there's, I mean, th anything that is happening in the now is always going to have a certain sort of like prestige or attraction to it, whether it's live theater or a concert or a, you know, a live event that we're all watching on television at the same time. Like there's, there's something about that. And I think there's going to be 
there will continue to be some really exciting things that happen in those spaces, uh, you know, benefiting from advances in real-time technology and AI and what that is enabling. Um, and I, I would can certainly continue to advise that any of the people in the motion design space start to get comfortable with some of the real-time tools, even if you're not using them for real-time specific events or kinds of disciplines. There is going to be a point in the next five to 10 years where you know, real time is just by default because we hate waiting for renders and and that sort of business. Um, but I think it's it's potentially going to open up some really amazing experiences, uh, many of which we can't even fathom yet. You know, and and it's easy to also look at like, yeah, well, like you know, it still feels gross to imagine a bunch of people wearing their sweaty headsets, you know, in incomplete isolation and and whatnot. Um, but that's going to be a that's going to be a temporary kind of experience, and the the tech and the gear and everything will continue to advance. The experiences will become more fluid, and our culture will sort of like reshape itself around these things. I mean, you know, the film and streaming and all of that is significantly less precious to the youngest generation right now because they're enamored with things that their friends or peers have captured themselves on mobile devices that didn't exist 15 years ago, right? My, my, uh, my brain got slightly broken recently by Justin Cohn, right, of uh, Buck, formerly motionographer fame, when he was just kind of casually mentioned, well, of course, the mobile phone as we know it is going away. Like, these devices are ridiculous. This, this basically this brick that we all carry around in our pocket, and we we kind of break our necks staring at all day long. Like, of course, that's not the ultimate solution to this thing that we're trying to do as humans. And I, that, that blew my mind because, oh, right. There's so many things that we think of as ubiquitous as quote standard or state of the art. And I think to your point, well, it's all shifting and there's something that's going to replace it. That's going to, we're going to look back later and be like, well, of course that's what it became. Of course that's what, it, you know, but right now we just think, oh, linear, the phone is going to keep getting smaller and thinner. And yeah, that that's, that's linear thinking. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think it's also important that we look at our experience in this space and the disciplines that we've developed, but most importantly, the kind of like mindset that we've gathered going through the collaborative, creative process, whether that's for advertising or for product design or for film or television or whatever it is, and really just look at what we can distill from that and start applying elsewhere. Because there is going to be something where these tools that are becoming increasingly more accessible, um, rapidly so, particularly with AI and the way that those tools are enabling things, we may get to a point where it's sort of like everybody is a motion designer to some extent. Everybody at least, uh, you know, knows how to apply animated type to an Instagram story that they're posting up, right? And can make, you beat me yeah, to and it, can, right? and can make choices and decisions around that. And I think we have to be prepared for like, you know, what it means when, when everyone has the capability to create this incredible content and experience it in different and new ways 
than than we used to. And so for me, you know, the the automatic default is just like, well, how do we continue to develop these tools or these experiences that enable or make it easier for people to create and define their own stories and and whatnot? Because again, I mean, like, you know, I it's rare nowadays that I get a message from a friend or a family member who's like, you have to go out and see this film or turn on Netflix and watch this right away. But like 20 times a day, I get a message that pops up that's like, yo, check out this Instagram reel. Uh, check out this TikTok video. Uh, check out this thing that was over here. And none of it is made by James Cameron or Gareth Edwards or or anyone else. It's just made by, you know, kids and people sitting around entertaining themselves. Right. And so there is this, this really interesting thing where we have a, a generation that's being raised on content that has no dependency on fidelity or production value. Right. And so I, I want to also make sure that we're looking at ways that like, you know, production value isn't the only thing that we've got. It's not the only thing that we are offering or providing or serving. Yeah. The barriers to entry, man, just have been obliterated. So I'm going to speak uh, for Ryan here because he, uh, no, has not been that quiet. We all know him better than that. <laughs> he, he had to, he had to bounce, but he did text me and say, sorry, I had to bail, but that was too much fun. Uh, that was all caps even. So John, let me ask you this, maybe wrap up question. Cause I think you said an interesting word back there when you said mindset, right? And what's the encouragement or where would you point somebody that says, Oh, that's interesting. You didn't talk about skills disciplines, learn this software program, that kind of thing. You said there's a mindset that's going to serve us well. Where would you point somebody? Uh, how would you encourage them to go down that rabbit hole? So it's there's there's a bunch of different sort of like layers or dimensions to it. I think the first, you know, and most objective piece is just making sure that we're always looking at when we work with our clients, whoever they are, no matter what space or discipline that they are in, that we make sure that we are keeping an emphasis on understanding what their problem is that they are trying to solve, understanding what we have in our capacity to help them with that, as opposed to like, you know, making our own personal portfolio piece or whatnot, but also trying to understand their challenge or their problem better than maybe they even do or maybe have the time to, right? And looking at ways that we can further reframe or better understand or approach the brief or rewrite the brief for the client or change the challenge or the ask or just work in that sort of space to make sure that we're providing the best value, not for exactly what was written in the email outlining the the requirements, but to make sure that we're serving the the higher goals. Um, and that that alone, you know, can become its own like martial art of just getting inside the mind of the client or the mind of an organization or understanding, you know, the different personalities that are in play or your different stakeholders or whatnot. 
But I think it's really critical that we always be thinking about that. And there's ways that motion design hard skills can even apply to that. Like I spend a lot of time in projects and with teams where we're sort of like, you know, if we have to make the case for changing the brief, which sometimes can be like an uncomfortable or potentially it feels like you're challenging your your client or whatnot. But when you can present that information to them in a way that's very easy for them to absorb and understand, like that's what we should be using our skills for, right? Like that's how we, like that's how you make advertising or storytelling or whatever it is. You are preparing and arranging information. If that's done through a really thoughtful deck or a series of animations or information and studies, but instead of them being packaged as like, well, here, read these eight white papers. Instead, like we can sort of make a lo-fi explainer for you that just breaks down like why we should be approaching this project in a different way. Um, those are all really powerful things in the process. And when you can get that to land, with a client, your value is just gone through the roof because you are no longer, you know, a executor or pixel pusher. You are really getting to the core of of the problems that, uh, again, many clients don't even have the time to fully absorb or understand what it is that they're going through, and and to be able to provide that that guidance. Uh, it's a it's a really powerful thing. And so to me, that's so critical to what we do. Uh, should be thinking about that throughout every bit of your process because it will also, you know, as you're doing the work, as you're doing the hard work and you're designing the pixels or you're setting the keyframes or whatnot, when you have those bigger picture concepts in mind, it ends up making everything else that goes into that project that much clearer and more precise uh, as creatives. We, like almost every single creative I know has a difficult time not like over convoluting things just in our own expression of like, I want to do this. I want to add in this technique. I want to flex, you know, this aspect of I'm really good at this, you know, component or, or whatever. And when you can take a breath, really understand the core challenges and what's at stake here, uh, that often, you know, sometimes it means editing down the work, actually taking things away, or maybe even investing less time into a project, which sounds counterintuitive, but it puts you on the pathway towards a clearer result. And then from there, like, once you can do that well, like, you don't have to do that in motion design, you could do that anywhere. You could do that with interpersonal relationships. You could do that with, uh, you know, accounting. You could do that in any other aspect of your life. I'm having this thought because you were sort of describing what I call the journey from order taker to expert, right? That in our careers, we're on this evolving journey uh, where people come to us and we're not just executing, we're not just pu pushing pixels, right? We're being respected as an expert because of what you just described. And I was having the thought that something else I love exploring more and more these days is this idea that innovation and efficiency are sort of opposites, right? On a spectrum. And for someone at a company, a brand, whatever, to go outside and hire you, John, 
or hire some studio or some animator or something is inherently in, is inefficient, right? They're actually going outside because they're willing to compromise efficiency for something else called innovation. Like what could we do if we brought in a real expert? And as an expert, you're probably going to shake things up. And it's okay to be inefficient sometimes and wasteful because you're exploring, you're trying. I'm thinking the days that you were doing, inventing these futures, right, at perception and so forth, that was not a linear, make us this whatever vision or technology of the future. And it's this, you know, here we're at point A, get to point B, and we make our movie. So that's kind of an interesting thought. And then I'm wondering, is our industry maybe on a similar journey, and I mean motion design, but the larger industry of just content creators and so forth, are we also on that same journey? We're all shifting from order takers to experts. It's, for me, I think that's just anybody's journey should be factoring that in. Um, I love what you describe about that friction between efficiency and innovation. Um, I recently had a, a wonderful uh, experience. I was consulting with uh, one of the one of the top tier um, legendary motion houses in New York, and they had uh, an enormous client. Uh, you know, one of the single biggest clients you could have in the world of tech. And we were working on an initiative uh, with this client. Uh, there was an incredible team that was assembled, like artists, uh, several of which that I've looked up to for a very long time. And we approached this project and the, I think the biggest contribution that I made as a consultant was like just telling everybody to kind of like slow down, take a breath, like don't, let's not make the thing yet. Let's not jump into it and put all the pieces together. And, and it's interesting. I've done this numerous times in my career where I've got a team in front of me and everyone's like itching to just be like, you know, let me fire up the, I just want to show you what an awesome render for this could look like and whatnot. And it's just like, I know you're awesome at what you do. You don't have to prove that to me. We don't have to prove that to the client right now. We just have to focus on the core ideas, the core pieces of this process that are going to be critical and important to them. And everyone was like almost panicked, almost like, but like, won't we be not giving them enough value and, and whatnot? Just, just guys, just bear with me. You know, everybody, you know, it was almost like uh, Braveheart when they're telling everybody to like, you know, hold your position, hold, keep holding, keep holding. It wasn't that we were holding. It wasn't nobody was sitting around and just, you know, like having a, a, a wonderful easy week or, or whatnot. We kept everything, everybody on the team was just focused on ideas from the most junior artists to the most senior artists, like nothing beyond pencil sketch fidelity. And let's just keep the ideas going. And it helped us create something that was so much more thoughtful and so much more proven and based in research and data that we were able to present to the client. And the final product that we presented, and this wasn't for a you know public consumption piece, this is for like an internal uh, R&D initiative. The final product was at uh, an incredibly low fidelity, particularly for this uh, studio 
which is known for their exceptional, uh, super high bar uh, of, of quality. And the client adored it tremendously because it wasn't, they weren't there for the fidelity. And even the, the part of them that was like sort of there for the fidelity was like, no, the, the thought and the ideas and the strategy that has gone into this is so much more important. And we trust all of this work so much more because it has been proven to us. And again, the, the skills that were put into play, the hard, the actual hard, tangible work, a lot of it was like, let's make diagrams to explain the idea. Let's make, you know, mock-ups and charts and, and graphics that show, you know, why we're arriving at the decisions that we're arriving at. And that sort of like, you know, showing up with really well thought out blueprints and like one or two paintings of the final structure or whatnot, it was, it was so valuable. It was so powerful for, for that team. And so, uh, it's, it's a journey that I love going on with, you know, teams and groups of creatives. And it's really fun for me to watch because it, it is always like one or two weeks or maybe even a month of people on the team. Like it makes them very anxious to not just jump in and just be like, but I need to, you know, show you how good my renders are. But when everybody on the team started realizing how much more impact they were having on the project through their thought and through the ideas, for me, it was a really beautiful thing. And I was really touched that, you know, as the project came to a close, there were several members of that team who were like, wow, like, you know, I, I thought you were crazy at first, but that ended up being like a really empowering and beautiful experience for me in my own process and understanding that all of this other insight that like I didn't even know was a big part of what was informing my work was actually more important than the, you know, clickety tappity stuff I was doing in the software. So I, I again, I every, everybody's got a latent version of that built up inside of them, and I would just want to make sure everyone's trying to find that. Well, as a former industrial designer, you're speaking my love language of that iterative sketch and conceptual process that is inherently inefficient. Right? You mm -hmm. should just sit down and make the thing already because you can. And these tools and technology and all that allow us to just rapidly get into making the thing, but we miss all that magic. So I appreciate that story. Well, I was going to say, let's end it there, but instead let's just say, let's pause it there until you and I and Ryan come back for episode three of, uh, the, the end of the beginning. <laughs> Did I get it right? Did I say the title right? It's, it is, it is officially the end of the beginning of motion okay. design and, and yeah, props to, uh, props to Ryan. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry he couldn't hang, uh, hang with us for the, the final lapse of this, but that was, I believe he coined that term, uh, last time, the end of the beginning. And I think it's absolutely perfect for, for where we're at. Yeah. Well, in deference to him, because I know he's he's listening to this now and being like, oh, I wish I could have chomped in, jumped into the final bits of that. We'll um, we'll pick it up with him again next time. But dude, I look forward to uh, seeing you hopefully soon here in, in New York and uh, Ryan out in Colorado or else soon as well. But thanks for being part of the conversation and sharing your wisdom and all your learnings of late. Always a pleasure, Joel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You know, producing this is an investment of time and money. So if you like the podcast, please 
leave me some feedback and do tell others about it. For more about me, you can just Google my name, Joel Pilger. To learn more about my work at RevThink, visit RevThink.com. I want to tell you about a place to connect that you might not know about. It's our online community called Rev Community. It's a great place to get to know other creative business owners like yourself, to share some thought leadership and read other encouragement, to be challenged in this new marketplace, new technology, ideas, economic trends, and it's a place to research. Check out many of the resources we have online, our videos, and of course, this podcast. Join us today at revthink.com slash community. If you're a creative studio owner, feel free to join us today at revthink.com slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.